Welcome to Radical Feminist Perspectives. The webinar is starting now. Um, today, we have Nancy, we're going to discuss Nancy Fraser and Maria Mies, their ideas on women, capitalism and work. And those they're going to be discussed by Inga Klein. Um, this series of webinars, Radical Feminist Perspectives, is run by radical feminists who whose voices have been cancelled or silenced in universities, schools and media. Frustrated, we cannot share what we know in those places. We're offering this online series of webinars here. So thank you so much to Inga and over to you. Hello, hello, everybody. And yes, thank you to you, Joe. And Marion and Sheila and all at WDI for your fantastic work. And I'm also happy to speak today about Nancy Fraser and about Mariah Mies, not least because I wanted to know more about some and I'll be happy later um, about questions or comments um, about um, their work and about my presentation. I'd like to start straight away. So um, Joe, could you put up the first slide Okay, um, so it's about Nancy Fraser, about Mariah Mies. Um, women who have written about and organized around um, questions of women, of work, of capitalism. I came across their names because of Mariah Mies and her ideas about um, a devaluation that happens about work women do. And Nancy Fraser, because I found her as a critic of identity politics and um, of liberal feminism, and I thought it might be worthwhile to learn more about those. What I would like to do is just give you an, so here you've got two photos, of course. On the left, you've got Nancy Fraser, and on the right, you've got Maria Mies, Maria Mies, and I just liked um, the photo of her in this specific t-shirt, because Maria Mies is really a very committed feminist. Um, could I have the next slide, because it will show you the outline of this talk. And, um, so that's what I want to do next here, give you an outline of my talk. The questions I had when I started reading about these, very short biographies of these two women, then Fraser's approach to feminism and equality, especially her thoughts about redistributive justice versus justice of recognition, because I think this is the only bit where she's written something worth of consideration for us. And then her latest text to um, gather with two other women called Feminism for the 99%, a manifesto. And I was really, really disappointed when I read it and also quite angry because I had to conclude that it's really got nothing to do with feminism. Um, Mariah Mies here is more interesting. She's been working for four decades on these topics like capitalism, patriarchy, and a concept she calls housewifeization of the way women are treated and developed and how their work is seen in a capitalist and patriarchal society. She's also interested in subsistence and localization as opposed to globalization and opposed to an exploitation of women and also of nature. And in the end, I would like to see what our conclusions are for women-centered societies. If we put women at the center of our thoughts and decide to build societies around 
the needs of women or around the needs of women and children and not around the needs of men. Um, so my next slide, um, if you could go there, is simply going to show you a kind of cloud. Um, as for guiding questions, this was about how I approached it. I wasn't quite clear in what I would find and what I would see. So um, obviously women, obviously patriarchy, obviously class, but more questions, our bodies, are we different from men? I mean, biologically, yes, and adult human females, of course, but are there more differences and how does do differences place us in societies in regard to nature? What role do identity politics play here? I wanted to find more about it because a Marxist feminist, I very much respect once said, well, even identity politics had its uses once. So maybe just because something is appropriated doesn't mean we have to throw it out. But it is also about colonialism, racism, about questions of universality in humanism and distinctiveness about the economic order. Um, obviously about children, having children, and about work, the work women do, about our possibilities and about the kind of societies we actually want. So these are the keywords I used to keep in mind when I looked at what these two women were writing. So let's go to a short biography of um, Nancy Fraser on slide four, which is on the next one. Thank you. Um, she's an academic, academic and academic, which in itself, I mean, Mariah Mies is also an academic, is nothing to be ashamed of, but um, the question is when she last saw or spoke to a woman and realized she was speaking to someone. She was born in 1947. She's a philosopher, a critical theorist, a feminist, a professor of philosophy in New York, and her key topics are concepts of justice. She's known for her criticism of identity politics, and I was looking for left-wing um, persons and big names um, to criticize identity politics. She's also a critic of liberal feminism, but as I found, um, this should operate in her case as a red flag rather than as assurance. What she wants is social justice, and in her case, it is still old-fashioned social justice, old school, in the sense of a justice of distribution of goods, a fair and equal distribution of goods, and an abolishment of capitalism, um, which is runs counter to ideas of identity politics. It doesn't matter what your identity is or what anyone's identity is. The question is how are goods and how is access to the economic order distributed in society? I've put up some of her publications here, Fortunes of Feminism, From State-Managed Capitalism to Neoliberal Crisis. It's a bunch of essays, um, and the same is true about unruly practices, power, discourse, and gender in contemporary social theory. What I focus on is her article from a lecture she had in 1998, or ni actually 1996, and it was published two years later, Social Justice in the Age of Identity Politics, Redistribution, Recognition and Participation, and just take out what we can use, which is about one page out of 68. And um, then this Feminism for the 99% from 2019, which looked promising at first. Let's get to her ideas about um, justice on slide five, because I mean, it helps, I think, to well, to tell you to um, 
sorry, Mariah Meese Rosa, because I wanted to introduce both women to you. Her life is more interesting because she is an academic, but she's also an activist. She's out there in the streets protesting, writing leaflets. Um, she's a sociologist and a feminist. Her key topics are women's studies and colonialism. She was the one who um, coined the term housewifeization in order to describe um, the role of women's labor and patriarchy. But in 1976, she was also among, with her students, um, the one to found the first autonomous women's center in Germany, which is strong activism. She's known for her criticism of globalization. She's a member of ATTAC. She's against capitalism and um, environmental questions are very important for her. What she wants to have is localization and subsistence economies, and she sees women at the center of those. Her publications um, selected are, those are available in English, most of these at least, Lace Makers of Nansapur, Indian Housewives, Prodios for the World Market, which is where she first developed her idea of a housewifeization of labor. And we'll get to what it means. Then Ecofeminism with Mandana Shiva, her most famous book, um, Patriarchy and Accumulation on the World Scale, Women in the International Division of Labor, where she criticizes current Marxist and non-Marxist views of the economy. Um, work, work on subsistence again and against globalized economies and her biography, The Village and the World, My Life, Our Times, which has been published by, was published by Spinifex. And the last one is also a collection of essays with two women, um, Veronica Bonhold-Thompson and Claudia von Berlhoff. Um, women, the last colony, again on the housewifeization of work and what that has to do with colonialism. In the sense of women being colonized, but also in the sense of colonialism, um, European colonialism and imperialism and their role in um, the economic order so let's go to the next slide and see what Nancy Fraser is saying and her ideas about identity politics. On the left of place, the cartoon, which sums up criticism of identity politics, where you see um, protesters in the background that want to take down Wall Street and want to take down capitalism, and a CEO at a large desk, leather seat, um, executive desk saying, introduce them to identity politics. The idea that identity politics can be used to um, impede mobilization and solidarity between people of the same class, distract from common aims and make people just focus on themselves. Um, a very general form of criticism. So, so this is a cultural matter which gets taken onto a social and economic one. This kind of Criticism is definitely um, appropriate where identity is seen as self-realization of realizing who I am and showing it to the world and where it is seen as a matter of psychology. And Fraser criticizes that by psychologizing our identities, um, we end up being regarded as problematic or mad or depressed, while in fact it is the surroundings which cause these um, states and of course it just takes um, our analysis away from any kind of class analysis. 
In her view, and here she has some points, it is better to view identity as a matter of recognition. So recognition as a cultural approach, not as a psychological one. And here her ideas are the distinctiveness as a basis of recognition. When you look at the next stage, taken down what she really needs of those in slide seven, which is on the next one. When we, thanks, when we talk about redistribution, this is just ordinary Marxism, socialism. There's an idea that inequalities in society, including those that mean a demeaning description of women or of racialized people or of working class people, are basically due to the economic structure of a society. Some people have access to means of production and some don't. Some decide on um, working conditions, on markets, some derive profits and the others don't. So these kind of injustices could be exploitation um, to be, have the fruit of one's labor appropriated. Some of this will be important later on when we talk about the exploitation of women again. It's also economic marginalization when you're being confined to poorly paid or undesirable work or no work at all, or deprivation, denied adequate material standard of living. And of course, this is true of very, very many people on earth, and it is disproportionately true for women. And here, the idea is that a better distribution of these goods, um, an ending of exploitation will help women, obviously it will. Recognition is a cultural aspect and it is rooted in social patterns of representation. It's here, um, the point is interpretation and communication. And in the definitions I found it makes sense. So misrecognition can have its root in a cultural domination when people are subjected to patterns of interpretation or patterns of communication associated with another culture or alien or hostile to one's own. For example, indigenous women trying to become heard, trying to be visible, trying to explain um, what is important to them and a cultural domination would mean that they are subjected to patterns of interpretation which will simply make sure they won't be seen at all or they will be misunderstood in what they're trying to say. There's a non-recognition. Again, if you're being rendered invisible, because of the representational, communicative or interpretative practices of one's own culture, which doesn't conform to the dominant culture, um, the kind of cultural domination or at least patterns of interpretation are a huge matter when we think of women and the medical establishment, for example. Um, whatever it is, um, at least in Germany, you could be as sick as you are, you might possibly need to lose weight and it will probably all be in your mind um, an, an unwillingness to even consider what people are saying. So here you have a recognition problem, not which can be exacerbated definitely by a class problem, but which affects rich women as well if doctors won't listen. So that is just one example, but it is of course also true in working class culture. And the last bit is a disrespect, maligned, being maligned or disparaged in stereotypical presentations or everyday life interactions. So here we have a recognition problem. And in this part, I mean, that is definitely something to consider. And it helps, I believe, just to unravel it and to put these different points, points in a list. Because we can see that here, um, 
there are um, problems in recognition which can definitely not simply be addressed by economic redistribution. And of course, without economic redistribution, uh, policies of recognition is not going to take us somewhere or not going to take us anywhere. So these are important and important again in the question of are women different now? Do we have a very different outlook on um, the world? And maybe also a misrecognizing of what Mariah Mies is saying or what we are saying when we are told we are being um, essentialist or subjected to or proposing a kind of biological determinism. So this is definitely a misinterpretation. Um, so here we have some points Fraser makes, which are helpful. It's about one page out of 68. Um, the rest is just basically common sense and long words. If we go to the feminism for the 99%, however, and that's slide seven, there's a bit more here. Um, it was written by Nancy Fraser, Chinsia Abruzza and Titi um, Bhattacharya. It's called a manifesto. So I have higher points in those, but when you read it, you realize it's more copied and paste. They attack liberal feminism, um, which they equate with white and middle-class feminism, which of course is fair enough when you're talking about the global north. Um, so there's a fair point here. They insist on anti-racist and anti-colonialist efforts and hard work if feminism is to work out. They insist on ending capitalism or and or the economic class system, which is based on exploitation, and they insist on ending exploitation of nature. Um, yes, I think most of us can agree to these terms and to these um, demands. The problem, however, is that they're not really interested in feminism. Um, they've got a feminism for everybody stance. Feminism is going to be good for everybody, especially if we abdicate feminist work and disperse into environmental anti-classist and anti-racist movements, I suppose it is. They have absolutely no understanding of women as a class. So there is no reason why there should be any feminism in their manifesto. And basically, it is just an ugly attempt at co-opting an emergent radical feminist movement, not only to um, these aims listed above, but also simply an analysis that has nothing to do with feminism or basically no analysis at all. No analysis at all. This is not about putting um, women at the center of our thoughts, women and children, and from that understanding that yes, actually clean air is a good idea. Yes, not being made homeless because of global warming is an idea. Yes, that means women in the West or global North will have to change their um, lifestyles because our contribution to global warming is far too high and global warming and its effects can be called genocide. Putting them at the center of that will of course lead to many of these questions above, but that is not what they are doing. Um, some of my criticism will foreshadow Maria Mies here, but the manifesto speaks of women trans and cis women, as if these were equal or even existed on the same level, um, which is nonsense. Trans women, I mean, whatever that is supposed to be, men identifying as women are definitely not subjected to um, an exploitation of their bodies or of reproductive labor, which is a very important point for me. Women do reproductive work, 
reproductive activities. We have babies and we raise them into children. So women do the kind of activities we need to keep society alive even, and that activity is being degraded, made invisible and exploited according to Mies. I mean, she explains it, but also according to us, I would say, if we looked at what women are doing, um, men identifying as women are definitely not subjected to an exploitation of reproductive labor. I mean, we could wish they did some instead of the wrecking there is. And even though there is a term like the feminization of, marginal, of marginalization, true, but feminization or oppression doesn't make anyone um, a woman. Exploitation as defined above, a standard definition Fraser uses is not enjoying the fruit of one's labor. And we have this, of course, for what women do when we raise families and we work for a, uh, a reproduction of society that isn't even ours. Um, under this definition, of course, there are other things. She speaks of sex work. Um, she hasn't mentioned surrogacy yet, but um, how could prostitution be anything but exploitation? I mean, common sense and any kind of empathy will tell us, but the fruit of one's labor, do these women believe women in prostitution have an orgasm every time a man squirts? No. And what really made me lose it is the section on male violence. There's an attack on holding men to account. They call it carceral feminism. And while I do understand problems in the justice system, obviously racial bias and class bias and laws and judges working to uphold the existing order and that's not in favor of women. Um, the violence section is just awful. As long as the individual men are acting the violence, the text drips with apologetics with poor men see what bad society is making them do. They're only being so violent because they feel they have to be supremacists to women and they only feel this way because they are so oppressed. Of course, they then move on to violence in a systematic way, violence as a systematic form of oppression of women. And here we nicely move over into a passive voice like women are raped in war. Yes, who, by exactly. So especially this one case shows that there is absolutely no feminism in this text, which is sad and which means, I mean, the points, yes, but if you want to have feminist, um, a feminist critique of racial bias or class bias or texts about um, the exploitation of nature and of women, we can find better texts. And even the attack on liberal feminism she starts off by, or they start off by attacking Sheryl Sandberg, um, CEO of Facebook at one point, um, offering the freezing of excels to women employees so they can defer a decision on having children and offer even men a choice of reproductive possibilities, i.e. surrogacy. I mean, what's not to hate about um, Sheryl Sandberg? Um, they have a nice sentence saying, um, shattering the glass ceiling while other women are expected to pick up the shards. They also end with an attack on liberal feminism. They also have an attack on Hillary Clinton saying that the fact she wasn't elected showed that women wanted more radical feminism. That may be, but um, the stark misogyny displayed during the electoral campaigns in 2016 isn't mentioned. And However awful Charlotte Sandberg is, patriarchy and capitalism do not exist because 
a woman talks nonsense. So they do not exist because a woman tries to bend them to her advantage or because a woman succeeds in doing so or can profit from it. We may all wish she didn't. We may definitely not support her. We can criticize her for it. But there is a bit like women explaining to us why prostitution is great. It doesn't matter what these women say because um, in the sense that prostitution does not exist because we can find a woman saying she enjoys it. And capitalism and patriarchy does not exist because um, Sheryl Sandberg exists or Hillary Clinton exists or feminists exist. We might wish for a lot of things. We might wish for white feminists to consider racial bias and by racial um, privilege and colluding in oppression. We might certainly take feminists in the global north to task for how we deal with nature, but these systems do not exist because of what women do. And that is really and completely lost. And of course it is because, well, we are supposed to help men achieve whatever it is. Okay. So goodbye, Fraser, and let's move over to Mariah Mies and slide number nine. Um, how's wifeization? Here, of course, I mean, I invite you to write comments in the chat or in questions and answers, because I know that many of you will know more about Mariah Mies and her theories of housewifeization than I do. And I'm trying to keep it short, so there will be time for questions and answers later. The housewifeization um, idea, however, was very central to her idea of how women are positioned globally and also as regards nature, but also especially as regards economic theories and how they are not just disadvantaged, marginalized, but even rendered invisible. Um, Mies says economic theories rest on an idea um, that all theories of work here have a definition of work that is productive, i.e. work that produces goods, goods which can be sold and where surplus value can be generated. Somebody, you get somebody to make the goods for you, but you own the means of production and the raw material, you get to sell um, the goods and that is how profits are made. As a result, these theories invisibilize and devalue so-called reproductive work or reproductive activity. And I'm sometimes not too sure about the English words I'm using here because I'm more used to an economic analysis in, in German. But the idea is women have children, women raise children, and women do a lot of work that keeps societies alive. Without this work, we wouldn't have societies. So capitalism does not, in fact, or the current economic order does not, in fact, rely on a surplus value through the production and selling of goods. It relies on having more workers and it relies on um, societies functioning because of the work done by women. Um, she also says that in patriarchal capitalist societies, women are automatically seen as housewives, as something attached to a man um, who will be considered a breadwinner and the free actor in a free society. Um, women's work, if she has any, will be merely seen as supplemental to the man's work. This was how she analyzed work done by, in India by women who were housewives, homemakers, and who additionally made lace for the world market. They didn't do it at a factory, they did it at home. So it was housewifeization. It, it was 
a housewifeization of actually a productive process, even in um, a general sense of the economy. Since women's work is not seen as productive, capitalist societies, and by definition also patriarchal ones, can make any work women do housewifed. That means whatever women do is just um, subordinate to what men do, less important, and so it is devalued, and it can keep women in corresponding jobs. I mean, what comes to mind here is anything to do with care, nurses, looking after children, looking after old people, cleaning houses, domestic work, all of these um, kind of jobs are often very poorly paid, have high demands on a person's sense of resp responsibility and maturity, but they are also well, devalued and predominantly done by women. She also says that colonization helped the process of housewifeization in the global north, and of course helped to re-import it everywhere. Um, colonization is one of the things which got trade and colonization is one of the things which got capitalism off the ground because capitalism now had enough money um, to actually start investing. The first shareholding companies were trading companies. So this is where money was generated. And in the end, it brought such productivity to the West or global North that via the exploitation of the colonized, that working class men could fight for better wages in accordance with certain working class values about the dignity of work which unfortunately are also often quite sexist values, but they now had enough money to earn and then enough money so they could sustain a family and even children. And before this possibility was limited only to very few people, middle classes, bourgeois classes, where women could be housewives because the husband made enough money. But middle class values in the West becoming dominant values means um, working classes aspiring to it. So here we have the link of capitalism and colonization, which made a housewifeization of women possible in the West. And this model, women are by nature housewives, could of course be re-exported re onto colonialized states. How did it happen historically? Why are capital, capitalist and patriarchal societies such that women see women as housewives? Neoliberalism, of course, is less finicky. I mean, neoliber neoliberalism is also quite willing to see us as workers. But how did it as such develop? Reasons are urbanization, um, both in industrialized countries and others, because urbanization splits families. You end up with a nuclear family. And that means care work now for children rests on a woman alone. She doesn't have her sisters, her aunts her grandfather, her uncle or cousin around to help her do it. In addition, um, a separation of home and workplace also contributed to this because before um, in subsistence economies, be that craft or be that agriculture, everybody works both inside the house and outside. Um, women do certain tasks, men do certain tasks, women grow some crops, women collect wood, but urbanization means women lose what they did before. Men, however, don't. And so men are now breadwinners and women are stuck in the house. And if they do get a job, it's going to be either in the house itself 
or this being seen simply as complementary. So that would be um, the historical background here. So in addition, of course, in Western societies, there was some this idea that because women do have children and men don't, and that's the one thing you really can't outsource at the moment. I mean, you can outsource it to women, but you can't outsource, it is always going to be a woman. Um, this idea of women somehow being part of nature, a devaluing of her work, that if a woman has a baby, this is not the woman interacting with nature, but it is simply having a baby because nature decides she has a baby. So there's not much difference um, between a routine cycle of, animal, uh, of animals doing it and women actually making an, um, a conscious and informed choice about what she is doing. So the idea, however, of women being nature and men being breadwinners also meant that men were subjected to cultural changes, historical subjects, and women, in this idea, there's no difference between a woman um, 60,000 years ago, sitting somewhere in a cave and feeding a baby, and a woman doing the same now. Men had evolution, women did not. This is another outcome of this view. Okay, so where to go from here? Um, the consequences of housewifeization, and those are three in the next three slides, 10, 11, and 12. Um, so slide 10, please. Just the next slide. Okay. Women are be being reduced or confined to work inside the home, which can also help very patriarchal um, societies decide she needn't be outside anyway, which has massive consequences for her being represented anyway. Of course, there's the nuclear family, which deprives her of help from other members of the family. And um, the man's role as breadwinner now makes him her political representative. And you can see in such a kind of analysis, how is a, um, a man identifying as a woman going to fit in here? Not at all. Okay. Um, a second consequence, slide 11, is um, this idea that women's work is not really important. It is an outcome of nature. I mean, we do it because of love. And we do it because it's our nature. So that's why we have children that look after them. And that's why we enjoy cleaning houses, especially our own for someone else. Um, our work is not really important. It's not really work. And if it is work in the sense of being paid, it is only supplementary to that of the real breadwinner. And this idea helps justify poorly paid jobs. It helps justify no job security, no trade unions, um, it helps demand permanent availability from women because what women is, are doing in the home is being expected elsewhere. It also means that societies can thrive by delegating important work to voluntary work, charity work, and again, that is mostly done by women. Obviously, you can find men in similar positions like cleaners or in coffee shops or Amazon staff, again, people in precarious work situations. This is what is being meant by a feminization of certain work, partly many, many women doing it, and ideas of how you can treat women being extended to a few other people. Of course, it doesn't make these men women, but it is an outcome. So the inequality between work and the type of work and how important it is being regarded comes out of this housewifeization. And the third consequence on slide 30, um, and slide 12 is, of course, it is um, 
was exported by Western countries and made prevalent because it now the whole model is taken to low-wage countries where a large part of the workforce is made up of young unmarried women or sometimes young married women who are hired because of their qualification as housewives, um, as understood by a capitalist and, and patriarchal society. An example would be um, the textile industry. This is um, causing problems within feminism and Fraser picks it up but doesn't understand it when she says or highlights the um, a Western attitude that what is emancipation for a woman in the West, for example, getting a good job, having her own income and an income she can live on, um, is being exported to low-wage countries where um, the idea is that women will be emancipated just for in just because they have a job. And you could ask if they actually are being emancipated if they leave their families and homes and go to a big city and have a very poorly paid job in an industrial building that like Rana Plaza will crash down on her. Obviously, this is not emancipation. On the other hand, is it emancipation if she stays in her village? And that is not the question that really needs to be asked. And here we have a real problem. If we don't center women, um, a criticism of one form of exploitation can very easily work as a justification of another. So here's some place where we really need to be careful, but especially, of course, the textile industry with its exploitation of women is an example of how housewifeization is exported, not only in a value system, but in a very, very clear economic system as well. So again, of course, these workers are simply housewives. And so they can be pay, they can be low pay, work contracts can be ended, there needn't be any rights to maternal leave or protection against unjust termination of a work contract. There need be no healthcare, no professional training. Um, this kind of exploitation is a Western attitude towards colonialized places, even if these places are nominally or are independent now. It's not limited to that. A few years ago, there was a strike by shop assistants in supermarkets in Germany, but 15 years ago, maybe. And it was, of course, shocking to see how little these women earn. And one of the um, CEOs of a large supermarket chain saying, well, you are all pretending these women are starving, but they aren't. These women are all married. So this is just supplementary income. So, yes, this is a fair analysis. So as a consequence we have of regarding women as housewives and of devaluating the work women do. OK, here. This is the end of my presentation at the moment, because where do we go from here and how? Obviously, the situation of women can only be changed with a new appreciation and understanding of um, the work women do, of what we do every day. But what are the effects on our understanding of nature and women? Or that's slide 13 still, where the questions are. Um, views of equality between men and women and of difference. What are chances of individualism? I mean, what about those of us who might want a women-centered society, but who do not want to be part of a family? Um, how do we, what do we need to be really careful about when we regard current discussions on care work? I mean, a lot of liberal feminists in Germany have taken it up. And what does it mean in a context of home office ideas in the pandemic? I mean, we have this idea that, oh yes, um, pandemic, home office, home office is so great because you no longer have a split between your work doing work being done at home and looking after children. But is it really 
on the road to liberation, I'm really very worried about it because if housework is devalued and people actually believe that looking after children is something you can do while you are chairing a meeting or writing up a report, um, women are not going to profit from it. It might just be the worst of both worlds. And there is one more slide I'd like you to show. Um, that's slide number 14. Um, if you could put it on, um, Joe. It's on the last one, and then we can go back to the questions. Um, it's the very last slide we have. Mm. So it's one further down. That's, yeah, exactly. I mean, yes. Um, take some time because it's lovely. I found slides like that on Twitter because a woman was really shocked saying, oh, housewives, 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, people knew how horrible their work was. They knew and did nothing. All they did was turn um, the bad sides of housework into a new kind of market. You market um, dangerous medication to women. This is the starkest one. It's really quite shocking because she's behind bars. You can't set her free. Well, um, actually, we can. At the same time, when I looked at these advertisements, I thought compared to today, at least people still understood to a certain degree that what these women were doing was hard work. There are lots of women, children all over the place, women being tired, sentences like children are murder, sentences explaining how you can be anxious about um, repetitive work, how housework can get you down. And always off, and you're always being offered alcohol or some kind of medication. These days, especially in discussions of home office and care work and children, I have this impression that we're even back, um, it has become even worse. You're not even supposed to, to think housework is hard work because it is so easy. It's done by itself. I mean, you've got a washing machine, etc. So that is where I, would like to, where I would like to go to now. And some of the questions which are outlined on slide 13 as well. And of course, in questions and answers or anywhere comments about um, the analysis, because as I said, quite a few of you will know more about Mariamis than I do. Okay, so I'm at the end of my presentation. Thank you so much, Inga. Um, uh, Caroline Norma is here and she uh, knows quite a lot about Maria Mies having uh, lectured about some of her books. And so I've made her into a panellist and I'm going to now, oh, here we are, here's Caroline. So um, I, I think we could see both of you. So I'm going to leave you to it, so chat and possibly pick up some of the cute questions, etc. Hi everyone and hi Inga, um, that, that was absolutely magnificent, I learned so much. I think I'm speaking for everyone here listening and I'm sorry to jump in everyone when it's certainly Inga who we should be learning from on this topic. So uh, thanks very much Inga, it was absolutely, I learned so much. Um, and I thought it was particularly brilliant to put uh, Mary Amiza's body of work in comparison to Fraser and her colleagues book Feminism for the 99%. Um, and I think you explained it really well, but I don't know, just as sort of maybe a question if you feel like fielding one, um, would be that how, as radical feminists, do we combat the kind of argument that Fraser and her colleagues put, whereby the minute we attempt to or formulate arguments and campaigns on behalf of women in the first, the rich world, on any issue, 
um, given that, and, and I'm not, I'm certain sisters here are certainly living in the third world, I know, but um, just for those of us who happen to be living in the first world, only know the first world, kind of can't really uh, do much, you know, unless we work in the first world, we can't achieve much. So we, we attempt to, I mean, I, I think this is quite normal, we attempt to launch campaigns and make arguments and political movements around issues we're immediately facing, but then from Fraser and those types face arguments about that's classist, that's racist, because you're not, um, I don't know, going across with Oxfam to do something with women in the third world, that kind of thing. I don't know, would you have any sort of arguments we could use from these or elsewhere on that? I would be fairly snarky. I mean, I would just tell her to read her texts about um, participatory parity and the politics of recognition and to work on how it can be done. Because obviously, um, there are a few things I would not want to discuss with Fraser, but with women in the first world. But the question is, if we want to change that, we need to hear what other women are saying. And here we need to understand patterns of recognition. Here we need to do what WDI is trying to do. I mean, how do we get women together? How do we get women to speak? So that policies that may even be well-intentioned don't actually harm women. Um, what I wouldn't say to Fraser is, of course, I mean, we have this, there are tiny things. I mean, I had a discussion in, in Munich. Our laws on abortion are really very restrictive in Germany. We want to change those. And I said, our activism is called Scrap Article 218. That's on the one regulating abortion. The others called themselves, called themselves Initiative for Reproductive Justice or for Sexual Self-Determination. I mean, I was out on that one. But I think, for example, women in Munich or Germany organizing on a specific problem that affects women in Munich or in Germany is not being Eurocentrist. It becomes Eurocentrist when you give it the most globalized um, name you can, pretend it's about reproductive justice or reproductive freedom, and only organize around abortion. If it is about reproductive justice, you've got to look at forced sterilization. You've even got to look at forced abortions. You've got to look at um, the issue of pressure on women who know the child will have a disability. If you're not going to do that, because your day has 24 hours and because you now just want to scrap this one law, then just call it that. Don't give it such a huge title and pretend you're interested. I mean, I suppose most are interested, but if I'm not willing to give it the same amount of hours that I'm willing to give to scrapping a certain law, so those would be some of the things. I mean, be local in what you're doing. I mean, and because then you are still leaving room for activism for others. But choosing the most encompassing titles and then pretending you're being internationalist because of it, I mean, that is being Eurocentrist. And the other thing I would say to Nancy Frey is simply, great, yes, you're right, so how? I don't want an appeal. I don't want your models here, I share those. I want to see how you do it. And um, since she doesn't have an analysis of women as a class, it won't work. And I do think consciousness raising, like being disparaged can help all. But yes, how, get, how to get women together, how to understand ideas of interpretations, how may cultural norms impede interpretation of what women are saying. And there's only one way we can learn that, and we can trust women, which Nancy Fraser doesn't. I mean, to read her manifesto, she's, she and her 
co-authors are the first ones who ever thought there might be a racism problem or a bias problem. I mean, yes, aren't we all grateful? So I would not really recommend you read it. I mean, there are good things in it, but those are copied and pasted from other texts. But just trust women to do it. Trust women from other countries to tell us and trust us to, to really do something to understand. But that's what I would say. Exactly right. And I think we hear time and time again from sisters abroad, you know, directed at women in, you know, real well-resourced countries, first world countries or whatever, to, to do our jobs so that the, the problem doesn't get exported like it has with the house wifiization issue that Mies discusses so well. But, you know, innovations in the first world become exports because of the colonialization process or the neoliberalism and globalization over and over, they become exports. I mean, constantly in Japan, I'm hearing that about the transgender um, ideological export coming in here. I mean, they, they, in a good way, in a good spirited kind of way, I'm not Japan's in the third world, but, um, you know, it's a very different political environment. It's not a liberal political environment. Um, you know, they, they, they're kind of just relying, you know, hugely on, you know, Western women to try and stop it before it comes, you know, before it gets so much momentum that it comes across. Um, but yeah, thanks, Inga, that was, oh, that's going to help us a lot, I think, those, those tips. But I think um, Melissa Farley's also written about this in particular, this issue of sort of, uh, for example, pornography practices being exported from the first world to the third world, um, obviously transgender exports going on as well. Um, I wondered, what, yeah, did you have any sort of comments on Western women's sort of our response? If we had any responsibility towards perhaps women with less resources, maybe, I don't know. I mean, we definitely need to think about stopping using of the world's resources because of the contribution um, to climate change is just enormous and climate change is genocide. Misgendering is not, but climate change is. I mean, it um, underdefects disproportionately women um, because it exacerbates urbanization, it exacerbates loss of homes and it's all of these. And women are supposed to be those who emotionally stabilize countries. Um, I think pornography is a good way of looking at it because it's an exploitation of women. It is shows how women are seen as a resource to be exploited. And when you look at the racialization um, you find in pornography, definitely you have that as well. What I think is also important because the um, manifesto discusses um, different communities and it does so in a way which I don't think is very good and helpful for example Muslim communities and of course a racist and intention in instrumentalizing certain topics but the question of course is universality of human rights or not do all women want the same and I believe they do or do they not I mean do um, Pakistani 14 year old girls in small villages want the same as girls do here, and I do think they want that. They want education and freedom and um, a choice to live independently. They don't want to live in families. I mean, maybe they do, but they would like to be asked first. And maybe they want to live in families at 25 and not at 15, etc. So I think we have problems here. Universality can make us miss important points where there are differences or impose values or like working class blokes imposing their own um, values on, on women. But at the same time, I'm finding it very difficult to go away from universalist ideas. 
But here I think we also have big questions. And I think an analysis like Mariah Mies is saying, let's go back to work women do and let's go back to the appreciation of that work could actually establish a kind of universality for women that has women at the center. So we could work out, we could work it out from that. But I don't know what your take is or matriarchal societies. I mean, I'm always a bit wary because of the family idea and then, well, because I never wanted children, but still <laughs> with such a different yeah. model or a better one. I must admit, I, I come across the exact same dilemma because yeah, exactly as you and Mary, um, Maria Mies says, I mean, obviously the, the worldwide defeat of women in the industrialized first world that took us away from the means of production that ended up this housewife civilization model developed and then was exported. I mean, that occurred, yeah, precisely because we, we lost, you know, access to the labor market and have, you know, been maintained, you know, remained in that state in, in many countries even today. So it's, yeah, I, I know, getting women into the labor market, yeah, but then once, I mean, the, Japan's a bad, a bad example for that because they, they did get into the labor market, but they got into the labor market as, as sort of sub workers in, in no sort of fashion equal to the standard yeah. male worker. All of that, but I mean, I'm, I'm a school teacher, so they have lots of progress of getting women and girls into science and to um, encourage them to do science. And of course, it's a good thing. I mean, they should not be prevented from doing it just because of some kind of bias and ideas. But we're not going to be solving the world's problems these days if we don't re-evaluate work. I mean, getting all girls into mint subjects, into science subjects, because they are better than um, care work or menial work, is not going to stop the devaluation of women's work. And when we look at um, societies, we need women's work more and more. I mean, in industrial countries anyway, because we don't have children, so we import people which is true. I mean, when you look at Germany, I was absolutely in favor of Germany uh, accepting refugees in 2014 and 15 and 16. And they are welcome. I mean, please open the borders, but I'm not under any illusion of why Merkel did it. Germany has a bit less of a labor shortage problem than some of the neighboring countries have. And what do you think the people are who are now um, having jobs in coffee shops and bakeries who are now having the jobs in um, even in, in, in government buildings um, at the doors and so on. I mean, these kind of jobs. Okay, if that is a stepping stone to something else, fine. If you come to a new country, you learn the language and for the first two or three years, you work in a bakery and then you get back to whatever you wanted to be doing, that's okay. But basically, these young men were being let in because they were a source of labor. And um, that is what's simply behind it. And I'm not, I'm not, I mean, that is also being um, exploited by right-wing people or instrumentalized because they know that telling a leftist we mustn't accept refugees won't work. So they highlight this aspect. So yes, please open the borders and let people in. Absolutely. I'm in favor of um, accepting refugees. I'm against deportations. And I think migration makes societies better. But right now we are, carrying exploitation to profiting again from the reproductive work of other women by they raise these people and by the time they are 18, 19, 17 or 25, they can come to us and we um, take it from here. Thank you. So this kind of attitude, um, which is also, of course, how even catastrophes of global warming or of wars and colonialist wars and wars in which the rest has a high um, 
the war West has a, or North has a high responsibility to just serve to fuel or funnel workers into our places. It's really a very ugly system, the more we look at it. And so I believe a re-evaluation of that work of women needs to come in addition to getting women into the labor force. And here we go back to a redistribution of wealth, of course. And that's right. And redistribution of sexual politics too, too because we saw men of the West in particular salivating at the idea of taking in Ukrainian refugees, which were mostly women and children, as we know, because of the policy of the Ukrainian government. Um, and it, I don't think I saw one mainstream media liberal news outlet mention the fact that actually, you know, that that word Natasha that we all knew from the 1990s, 1980s, uh, 1990s, um, that was a stand-in word for prostitute in, in men's terms. Um, so that, that, that was Ukrainian specifically. Actually, the largest number of women trafficked out of the old Soviet Union states during the, um, you know, Western attack upon the Soviet Union, I think, um, from in the 1990s, were Ukrainian. I mean, I, obviously, you too, Inga, have been to sex industries all over the world. As far as, as, far as uh, to South Korea, I mean, it's, it's well known. There's, there's still Ukrainian women in that industry. They're kind of a, a known, you know, associated with prostitution so closely, even, you know, even more so than Russian women, I think, you know, give or take. Um, but, yeah, I mean, your, your comments during this lecture today, I think, were so important on that front too that, I think in Australia specifically, I mean, we're very happy to take in Asian women, mm -hmm. partly because of the sex industry, um, and sort of this kind of, it's, it's hard in Australia because, to be honest, liberal women haven't stood up against the sex industry, and I think a major reason for that has been that there's Asian women stuffed in there and they see that as, as not but that. They see Asian women as, you know, quite suited and amenable to prostitution. So obviously with surrogacy as well, we've got problems in terms of this relationship between women in the first and third worlds that is easy to pick on. I mean, I, I prefer Mises' analysis completely that these two things are symbiotic in terms of oppression, but we're so vulnerable to phrases of the world saying that we are directly implicated in the hardships of our sisters abroad. I mean, initial like prostitution is possibly really good because here feminists can really work together. I mean, in Germany, this attitude that all of Eastern Europe only exists for German exploitation. I mean, that has its very ugly roots and um, is still being enacted. And here I believe it is a possibility of really working together because feminists already want to end it. I mean, that is only just one specific form, but a very central one. So that I believe could really help. And yes, I do believe environmental issues and placing women at the center, not just, I mean, Mariah Mee says, um, many of the environmental um, groups are being led by women. Yes, that is already an in and of itself good, but really having them at the center to make the world a better place for women, and if men profit by it, okay, we're willing to accept that, but it's not our first goal. And I think that would really also be an important, important step because that's what's really pressing now. But I really need to see where we can take Mariah Mises' analysis because right now I'm worried about turning reproductive labor into productive labor like prostitution or surrogacy is definitely not a way out. And I'm a bit afraid that's where things are going. And um, I'm, um, I'm going to step in now because it's 11 o'clock and it's we've we've so it's the end of the webinar. We've come to the end of the time. Thank you so much to Inga Klein you, and Inga. Caroline Norma for the talk. Um, and maybe if you have a, a final thing you'd like to say, do, but then we need to finish. Hmm. 
Thank you all for listening. It was great. And it was great for me to have the opportunity to, to talk about it and the reason to look at it more closely. <laughs> so. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you very much to everybody and to everybody here who's participated. Okay. See you next week. Bye bye.